Father, I I think of the words of the last song that we sang, and I pray that you would would bring glory to yourself through the preaching of your word, and that every heart here would come to trust in Christ alone. Lord, I know that there are many people in this room who are trusting in Christ alone. They know that they belong to you, and there are some who probably don't know and don't belong to you. I pray, Lord, that As we go through Acts chapter 12 today, you would work in our hearts, those of us who know we are yours, that you'd fill us with thankfulness, gratitude, amazement that you have saved us, that you've sovereignly chosen us and rescued us. Lord, for those who are sitting on the fence or who are investigating the claims of Christ, Lord, would you be calling them? Would you be moving in them to call them to repentance and to faith even this morning? Pray, Lord, that you'd help us to understand what it is that you have written, that we would know what it says, why it says it, and we would know why it matters to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Like I said, we're going to work through all of Acts chapter 12 today. So if you're looking it up in a pew Bible, you're going to want to look on page 920, Acts chapter 12. It's it's all one story, but it's broken into three distinct parts first part of the story is very short, and it tells of the death of a beloved follower of Jesus. The second part is longer, and it tells the story of the rescue of another beloved father, follower of Jesus. And then finally, the last section is judgment, and it shows how justice catches up with the guy responsible for the first two parts of the story. So part one, death. This is Acts chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, if you've been tracking through Acts with us, when it says about that time, you might be wondering, well, when exactly are we talking about? If you just read through the first 11 chapters of Acts, you would get the impression that, well, this stuff is happening really fast, one after another. But in fact, it's likely that those first 11 chapters represent about 11 years. So Jesus is likely crucified in A.D. 33. This is taking place, as far as we can tell, in A.D. 44. There's a lot of holes in Acts 1 through 11. There's just... If, if Luke had recorded everything for us, there's no way it would all fit. So he hits the highlights for us. And at this point, after what Russell preached last week, we get this statement that at that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. If you are familiar with the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus, you may be thinking, hey, I've heard about this Herod the king guy before. It's a different Herod. The guy who was responsible for the murder of the boys in Bethlehem at the birth of Jesus, that was Herod the Great. This is Herod Antipas I, who is the grandson of Herod the Great. Both bad dudes, though. Both responsible for the death of innocent people. In this case, we're told that he violently captures some people that belonged to the church and that he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So let's just get some pictures in our minds of what these first three characters are like. So we got a picture of Herod the Great. He's dead at this point, but his grandson, Herod Antipas, is now reigning. 
and he has decided that it would be good for him politically. He would score points with the enemies of Christianity if he arrested some Christians in Jerusalem and he put James to death. James, our next slide here. This is not the James that wrote the book of James. This is not the James who is the half-brother of Jesus. This is James, the brother of John. And throughout the New Testament, he and his brothers are referred to as James and John, the sons of Zebedee, except by Jesus. Jesus gave James and John another name, a nickname. Does anybody know what Jesus called James and John? The sons of thunder. Yes, it's like a biker gang from the first century. What did Jesus mean by that? Well, it seems as though those guys were kind of hot-headed. At one point, they want to they call down the wrath of God on people. And so maybe it wasn't exactly a compliment, but their nickname was the Sons of Thunder. And one of the Sons of Thunder, James, is arrested and he's killed. The passage tells us he was killed with a sword. Church tradition adds to that and says he was actually beheaded with the sword. Now, when Herod did this, this would have sent shockwaves through the church. Because this is one of the main dudes. So you've got the 12 disciples who become the 12 apostles. Then you've got the three that are with Jesus like on all those special things like the transfiguration. And those three are Peter, James, and John. So one of the inner three, one of the closest ones is arrested and killed. This is the first of the apostles to be martyred for the faith. Yes, we saw Stephen martyred for the faith. He was not an apostle. This is the first of the 12 of the inner three. And you can see how this would rock the church because if God will allow James, one of the three, to be arrested and killed, well, then I'm not safe, right? There are thousands of members of the church in Jerusalem, and they're all probably thinking the same thing. If God will not protect James, will he protect me? Well, that's the end of James' story. That's all we're told. He's arrested. He's killed with a sword. The next section, though, is much longer. This is rescue. Verse 3. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, so Antipas is a people pleaser. He wants to please the crowd. He proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. It's a Jewish feast. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivered him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So the crowd pleaser, Herod Antipas, recognizes that he has scored political points by killing James. And so he, he sends people out to track down and arrest Peter, put him in prison, but the Jewish people, they, they don't want any kind of uh, violence or execution during that Holy Week. That is the week that Jesus was killed. Again, overseen by the same guy, Herod Antipas. But this time he's going to honor the Jewish traditions. And he's just going to hold Peter in jail, wait for the end of the feast week to be done, and then he's planning to kill him. John, while one of the apostles, is still kind of a little fish, I'm sorry, James, one of the apostles, still kind of a little fish. 
We don't know that he does much in the book of Acts, but Peter, he is the big fish. And so when, when the soldiers find him and arrest him and bring him to Herod Antipas, Herod is like, man, this is good news. The people are going to love me for killing Peter. And I hope this story is already causing you to wrestle some with the idea of the sovereignty and goodness of God. We say that God is sovereign, that he is the ruler over all things, that he is in charge of all things, that nothing happens without his approval and ultimately his choice that it would happen. And we say that he's good, that he's loving. And here we have in this story some guys that he loves and he seems to be allowing them to be mistreated really badly. How could God allow James to be killed? How could he even foreordain it that one of his beloved three would be murdered? And now Peter's in prison. How can he let this happen again? It's not the first time Peter's been in prison. Both for James and for Peter, I assume that when they are arrested, they hear echoing in their minds these words of Jesus that he spoke to them years before. In Luke 6.22, he warned them that this was coming. He said, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Son of Man being Jesus' favorite title for himself. So he's saying, when people hate you, when they treat you badly, when they arrest you, when they murder you, when they make life terrible for you, you are blessed. That doesn't make sense to us. That doesn't sound like blessing. I hope by the end of the sermon this morning, it will make a little more sense for you. You and I are pretty insulated by this kind of thing. We don't currently live in a culture where we are actively, usually, violently hated for being a Christian. Our culture does seem to be going in that direction, though. But there are millions of Christians around the world who are facing Great persecution, even death, even this morning, for belonging to Christ. Let's go back. Verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So the church is praying. I have to wonder, were they praying a few days earlier when James was murdered? If they were, I assume they were, why do they pray now for Peter if God refused to rescue James earlier? They're probably praying, Lord, rescue James. Please deliver him from this evil man, Herod. Spare his life. And then he's killed. But we're told here that they're making earnest prayer. They're probably meeting for long hours, pouring out their hearts together and individually praying that God would intervene. If we turn to the book of James, not written by the same James that was just killed, but by the half-brother of Jesus, we read this in 5.16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now we could talk about that verse for the whole sermon. What exactly is that saying? But notice at the main point, prayer has power. Prayer accomplishes things. It works. 
And somehow, mysteriously, God in His sovereignty, in His rule over all things, works in concert with or in harmony with our prayers. It's not like God is up there saying, should I let Peter go or should I let him be killed? Well, they're praying really earnestly, therefore I'm going to let him go. No, that's not happening at all. This is all foreordained. This is planned in advance. God is ruling over all of it, and yet somehow, mysteriously, our prayers work in concert with his sovereign plan. So if you're praying for something, keep praying. If you're praying for John Snyder to be delivered from cancer, keep praying, right? Don't give up. Pray earnestly. If we go back to Peter, we're told that he's got four squads of soldiers. Anybody know how many soldiers are in a squad? Squad. Squad. Four soldiers. Excellent. Yep. So four squads of four soldiers. One dude. 16 guards. Probably on rotation. Normal would be a three-hour shift for them. But still, four at a time against one guy who is also in chains behind bars must be considered quite the threat. This is not the first time Peter's been arrested, and Herod knows that Peter somehow miraculously escaped the first time. Verse 6, now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, so the night before the the public execution, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. Centuries before the door were guarding the prison. So is Peter freaking out because he's about to lose his life the next morning? He's sleeping. Do you have a trust in the sovereignty of God? Do you trust that you belong to him, that if he has saved you by grace through faith in Christ alone, that you belong to him, and that if you die in your sleep or on the way to lunch, or at the hand of an executioner the next day, that you know you are with him. Peter seems to have that kind of peace, that he can sleep the night before his execution. All right, we're going to read the next few verses all in one big chunk. Seven, behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, get up quickly. The chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, dress yourself, put on your sandals, and he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. He went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. For you and I, the idea of the gate opening by itself is not particularly crazy, because when we go to Walmart, the doors open automatically for us. Uh, Jen and I spend lots of time at um, Children's Hospital, and I, when I approach a door, I expect it to open for me, but it doesn't. You have to wave your hand in front of the thing to make it open. So there have been many times when I've been walking along, and I'll Oh, the door didn't open, right? These guys, when they see, well, Peter, when he sees his gate just open by itself, this is a new thing. Verse 11, when Peter came to himself, he said, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. 
Now, this sounds like a crazy story. This sounds like fiction. But if the Bible is the trustworthy word of God like we believe it is, then this really happened. That Peter's sleeping. He's chained. He's between two guards. There are two more guards standing right outside the door. An angel knocks him on the side, wakes him up, says, get up, get dressed, follow me. The chains fall off. The doors open on their own. He walks out into freedom. This whole time, he thinks he's just dreaming this. And then he realizes, wait a minute. I'm free. I'm standing outside, no chains, no guards. I'm free. Second time in his life, he's been miraculously delivered from prison in Jerusalem. A little side note here. We're introduced at the end of this section to this guy whose name is John, who is also called Mark, and the church is hanging out at his mother Mary's house. Lots of Marys in the New Testament. This is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. This guy whose name is John, who's also called Mark, would later be called John Mark, and then eventually we just know him as Mark, the guy who wrote the gospel of Mark. He becomes a traveling companion in Acts chapter 13. He goes off with Paul and Barnabas on Paul's first missionary journey, but he chickens out halfway through and he goes running home to mama. Makes Paul really mad. He doesn't want to have anything to do with him. But in God's mercy and grace, God uses the chicken, the deserter, to write the story of Jesus for us in the Gospel of Mark. I hope that's encouraging to you. All right, verse 13. He goes to the house. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. They kept saying, it is his angel. Now, I feel bad for Rhoda. This is all we know about her, right? She's just doing her job as a servant of the household. Somebody's knocking at the gate. She goes, realizes it's Peter, and she doesn't have the clarity of mind to open the gate for Peter, but instead goes running back and has this argument with everybody. Peter is still standing out there. I don't know if he's yelling, hey, Rhoda, it's me, let me in. Or if he's just shaking his head, looking at the ground, saying, this is how it always goes for me, right? Or maybe he's hiding in the bushes because he's worried about the guards discovering that he's gone and coming looking for him. Either way, they have this strange argument where they, they accuse her of being insane. That's pretty harsh. Say, so you're out of your mind. Now, I'm not going to say she's the sharpest tack in the group there. She does not let him in, but still, they're pretty hard on her. But notice what else they say. They say, it is his angel. What is that about? Is, are they suggesting that maybe there's this angel that somehow sounds and looks like Peter that is assigned to Peter? And that he's the one standing at the gate? Is this like a guardian angel? What is this? Well, at that time in Jewish history, there was this, this common superstition that played itself out in two ways. One way was they believed, well, some people believed that when a person died, their spirit kind of hung around for a while, almost like a, a temporary haunting. And they looked, at, the spirit looked and sounded like the person looked and sounded. That could be what they're thinking of. 
There's another branch of that superstition that said, no, everybody has like a, a guardian angel assigned to them, and that angel looks and sounds like that person, and so that must be who this is. Now, notice, Luke does not say it is his angel. He simply reports what the people are saying. There is nothing taught in the New Testament to suggest that either of those two superstitions are true. They're just superstitions. But Luke is describing for us what is happening in that conversation. He's not telling us we should believe this. He's just telling us that these rude guys who were saying that Rhoda had lost her mind, they are trying to explain it in this superstitious way. Now, these guys, the church, they're gathered together. They're praying for Peter's release. We're told that in verse 5. And yet they're utterly surprised when God does exactly what they were asking. I hope that's a, a, an encouragement to you. Because we tend to have that kind of silly faith where we think, I will pray for this, I will pray for this, I will pray for this, but I don't really expect God to do anything. Maybe you remember the story of Jesus healing the, the boy who would be racked with convulsions because he was possessed by a demon. Mark 9, written by John Mark at the house of his mother that we're just dealing with. And they brought the boy to him, Jesus. And when the spirit saw him immediately, it convulsed the boy and fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? He said, from childhood. It has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can. All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Let me encourage you this morning that if you are like that group of Christians gathered in the room praying for Peter's release but not really believing that it would happen, or if you're like this father hoping that Jesus could somehow heal his son but not having enough faith to really believe it, let me encourage you to adopt the prayer of this father and just say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I don't know what it is that you're dealing with, that you're praying about, but just Add this in as a little seasoning. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. All right. Verse 16. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James. Again, not the James that was just killed. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church. Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, if you remember back in Acts 5, when Peter was arrested and he was freed miraculously the first time, he goes to the temple and publicly proclaims the gospel. His jailers are still trying to figure out where he is. He is not in hiding. He's proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, basically daring them to arrest him again. This time, he gets out of prison miraculously again, but he goes into hiding. It doesn't always happen, have to happen the same way. Now, if we looked at this, we might judgmentally say to Peter, well, what, what a coward. Doesn't he believe that God can 
preserve him like he did before? He just got him out of jail. Why would he go into hiding? And I just encourage you, as I read that and as my mind thought that judgmental thought, it occurred to me that God is not bound to do things in a person's life the way that we think he should. And so he works in Peter's life in a different way here. He's going to preserve Peter's life so that Peter can be used in great ways in the future. Verse 18. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers, no kidding, over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now, if we're talking about the sovereignty of God, we can't just zoom right over that. God sovereignly works to rescue Peter from prison to save his life. Then we're told, as a result of that, the guys who were guarding him lose their lives. Does that mean that God is sovereignly condemning them to death? Is God responsible for their death? I would say he is not responsible. That it is the evil of Herod who arrested Peter in the first place, who responded with this anger, who refused to believe his guards, who murders the guards, that it is his responsibility that somehow the act, the free act of Herod makes Herod responsible even in the greater picture of the sovereignty of God. So we think about things that took place in Texas this week. If God is sovereign over everything, is he responsible for the evil that took place? Is he to blame? I would say the Bible says no. It is human choice that brought that about, even under the sovereign plan of God. But if God is sovereign, and he rules over even King Herod, how can Herod be held responsible? Or, to turn around the other way, if someone with so much power and authority like King Herod, all right, so we would say like the president, like the director of the World Health Organization, like the Secretary General of the UN, if somebody can have that much power who can basically do everything that they want to do, how could God be sovereign over that? How could God work in somebody's life? And I want to direct you to Proverbs 21, 1, where the writer of Proverbs says this. He himself, a king, says this. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So this is, at the time that that's being written, it's being written by the guy who's the most powerful guy in his part of the world. And yet he says, that, he says, my heart, the heart of the king, is directed by God. If you put your hand under the faucet and you kind of turn it back and forth, you direct the stream in different directions. Or if you're outside and you put your thumb over the hose in order to spray your brother or sister, right? He's saying it's the same thing 
with God, that God sovereignly directs this flow of water. The heart is like that flow, even for the king. Let that sink in a little while. Even for the king. Even for King Herod. God is sovereign. Which brings us to part three, judgment. First we saw the death of James as he's murdered. And then we saw the rescue of Peter, miraculously freed from prison. And now we're going to see judgment as Herod gets what's coming to him. After Peter was sprung from the joint by the angel... King Herod Agrippa traveled down to the Mediterranean coast. We're told he hangs out at his palace in Caesarea. This is a map showing you, uh, color-coded, the kingdom of Herod Agrippa I. So the green shaded area is his kingdom at this time. Jerusalem, where the action's taken place, and then Caesarea, where he's hanging out now, down by the coast, those are within the kingdom. The other two cities on the map, Tyre and Sidon, are outside of the kingdom, and what we're just going to learn is that they are dependent on the kingdom for food. And so they're going to kiss up to Herod in order to keep their food supply. We might draw a parallel to what's happening over in Eastern Europe, where we have countries that are dependent on oil, gas, food from Russia, who are reluctant to speak against what Russia is doing in Ukraine, because... They need the stuff. Same kind of dynamics are happening here in this passage. Verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. They come groveling, asking for peace. Please keep the food coming, King Herod. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. The story just keeps getting a little weirder each time we go back to it, right? So here we have the king who thinks he's sovereign over this whole region, who can just arrest people and have them killed at will. He's sitting on his throne. The neighboring people have come to grovel to him. He, he makes some kind of great speech, and they respond with, this is not the voice of a man. This is the voice of a god. And Herod likes what he's hearing. Within the Roman Empire, the emperor is worshipped as a god. And Herod is sitting on his throne thinking, well, I'm not the emperor yet, but I kind of like this. I like this worship. I could get used to this. And as he's thinking these proud, arrogant, blasphemous thoughts, an angel shows up. Maybe it's the same angel that showed up before. Remember how the angel struck Peter to wake him up? An angel strikes, same word, Herod here. So maybe it's angel with the best battering average. He comes, he, he, he hits people to get their attention. Either way, we're told that this man who's, who felt invincible, something goes on inside of him. What's going, I'm not sure I'm feeling right. What's happening? He, maybe he clutches his hands to his chest. Maybe he falls to his knees and then on his face. But 
It happened quickly. He went from ruler of the kingdom to being eaten by worms, probably in a matter of seconds. The wording here is not saying, look, he died, he was buried, and just like all bodies, he can decompose and he's being eaten by worms. No, if you look at even the order of it, it suggests that he was still alive as the worms started doing their work. Right? It says he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Now, this is not a nice picture for us, right? But this is God sovereignly intervening, bringing judgment and justice. Passage ends this way. But the word of God increased and multiplied. So what's the result of the king falling dead and being eaten by worms? The word of God increased and multiplied. That means that the gospel continued to be preached by the church in Jerusalem, by the expanding church throughout Judea and Samaria. And it, as we saw last week, it's already up to Antioch. It's, it's starting to fly out into the world. The gospel continued to advance. The king who thought he had authority and sovereignty, he's being eaten by worms. He doesn't matter anymore. Luke is telling us that's not where the real action is. The real action is in the church. The church is expanding. The church is growing. People are coming to saving faith in Christ. Who cares about the silly king and his worms? This is what is really important. And then verse 25. Barnabas and Saul, who would later become named Paul, returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So we get our, our John guy there. And that's setting us up for chapter 13, where these three guys and others will go off on their first missionary journey. They'll head off into the Northwest, looking for people who have never heard the gospel in order to share with them the gospel, so that the verse before it comes true more and more, that the, that the word of God increases and multiplies. So what are we to do with this three-part crazy story? Who cares that James died, that Peter was freed, that Herod was eaten by worms? If we think about the three words that we've assigned here, death, rescue, and judgment, God is sovereign over all three of those things. God is sovereign over the death of James. He foreordains it. He chooses for it to happen. He allows James to be killed by an unrighteous man. But then he chooses to rescue Peter. Was Peter more liked than James? We're not told that at all. God's got certain plans for Peter in the future, but is it just a utilitarian thing? Like, hey, Peter didn't didn't get his assignment done yet, so we got to give him some more time. No, God has this great plan. He's sovereignly working through both of these things. He could have done it differently. Judgment. If God is going to judge Herod, strike him down and have him eaten by worms, why not do that two weeks earlier and save James from death and spare Peter the whole imprisonment thing and the embarrassment of not being let in the gate by Rhoda? timing of it is on purpose. It's all part of God's plan. 
Maybe you guys have been through things in your life where you think, God, if you had just shown up a day earlier, an hour earlier, even a few moments earlier, the story would be completely different. These three acts, death, rescue, judgment, happening in the timeline that they happen, reinforce for us that none of this is by accident, that this is all the sovereign will and the sovereign plan of God. I hope that brings you courage. I hope that brings you comfort. Even if it makes you a little mad. Even if you want to shake your fists at God and say, why did your plan have to play out in my life in that particular way at that particular time? This week, Jen and I got to participate in a Pastors and Wives Retreat in Michigan. It was sponsored by the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. Excellent, like world-class pastors and counselors coming together in order to, to minister to people like Jen and myself. Everybody who was there for the retreat was either there to counsel people or they were there because they were having significant church problems, marriage problems, family problems, or just other things. And it was a time of rest and it was a time of help and encouragement. We had lots of conversations with people. And the last meal that we were there, breakfast, we're sitting at the table with three other couples. And it, it always starts this way. You sit down with new couples and you say, okay, tell us about yourself. Tell us about your kids. You know, so we talk about our million and a half kids and Owen and all the things that happen with all of that. And you go to the next couple and they, they talk about how it was really hard for them to have kids. And they've, they've been able to have two kids, but they had multiple miscarriages. And it was just breaking their hearts. And they chose to adopt. And they had two babies that were ready to be adopted. And then the plans fell through. One, they were at the hospital and just weren't allowed to take the baby. And then they tried fostering and they went through all of the training. And, and at the end, they didn't end up fostering at all. God thwarted that through a family situation. There's all this heartbreak that they're going through. And so then I turned to the, the next couple, and it's the same question, you know, tell us about your family. And she, she responds with, we have two living children. We lost our 13-month-old in February. Is God sovereign over these situations? The fact that Owen was damaged as an infant before we knew him. Is God sovereign over that? Is God sovereign over the couple's miscarriages and failed adoptions and failed fostering and the other couple's death of their 13-month-old who went to the doctor with the flu, was sent home, and died in his sleep? Is God sovereign over these things? Maybe through gritted teeth we say, I have to believe that he is. Because if there's any hope for justice at the end, like justice at the end of our story, but justice at the end of the story, if there's any hope for justice, there has to be a God who is reigning over everything, 
that is not taken by surprise by anything, that is not at the mercy and the, at the whim of some other entity. He takes orders from no one. His, his will bends to no one. We have to believe in that sovereignty. So why the suffering? Well, obviously we live in a broken world, right? So we, we have suffering, but what's, what's the point? What good is it? If you have suffering in your life, like at least a couple of you do, if you have suffering in your life and you are a child of God, the purpose of that suffering is to make you more like Christ, who suffered greatly, who is known as the man of sorrows. If our goal as Christians is to be like Christ, God will necessarily use suffering to make us more like Christ. Elizabeth Elliot put it this way. She said, God's curriculum for all who sincerely want to know him and do his will always includes lessons we wish we could skip. I don't know if there were lessons you wish you could skip in school. If it was a math lesson, even though you want to skip it, you know you can't because everything builds and you're just going to be lost in the future. But man, there are, there are lessons in life that we would all choose to skip if we were sovereign over our own lives. But God in his goodness... God in his love for us, God in his desire to shape us more into the image of his son doesn't allow us to skip those. So in our story today, it was the death of James and the imprisonment of Peter and the death of the guards and the judgment on Herod that all somehow fits into his goal of shaping his people more into the image of Christ. Nothing takes him by surprise. Nothing is outside of his control and oversight. I want to encourage you with just this one verse from Psalm 139. Do you, do you know that God knows you, that he knows you intimately, that he knows everything about you, that he is not surprised by anything, that the things that hurt you most in life, the things that you want to scream to him about, that none of that is a surprise to him. Psalm 139, 16. The psalmist says to God, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. The history of your life was known was written before you existed. Your conception, your birth, your third grade year that nearly did you in. All of the things that happened in your life written in that history even before you existed. The God who writes that history loves you. He wants the best for you, even if it means a lesson that you wish you could skip, but that he insists that you go through. Let's pray. Father, I, th I thank you for these...